Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gann. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, we are going to be in Nashville. I have the dates down here. June 22nd through the 21st, Pittsburgh, June 26th through the 29th, Philadelphia, 6.30 through July 2nd, and Delaware City, uh, July 3rd through the 5th. These dates are pretty loosely held, I would say, because we are driving. We've talked about many times on the podcast that we do prefer to drive on our research trips, so we are on our own schedule. Uh, so if you're a potential investor and would like to uh, meet up with Jeff and myself, uh, email me, Andrew, at info. I'm sorry, Andrew at focuscompounding.com, or you could also email um, info at focuscompounding.com. Either or works. They both come to me, or my DMs on Twitter are open uh, at Focused Compound. Uh, so in today's podcast, we are going to be going over um, what if the value gap never closes? Obviously, value investing has been a pretty important topic recently okay. um, because values, uh, I guess, been dead <laughs> you know, for a very long time. Um, so we're going to jump into that. Before we do hit on that, though, um, if this is the first time you're tuning in, make sure you hit those subscribe buttons. That helps Jeff and myself. And then be sure to save all of our podcasts because we're coming up to July 1st and only 20 of the most recent podcasts will be available um, for everybody to listen. And then the rest will be behind uh, paywall, which is going to be eight bucks a month. And then you get access to the 200 plus uh, different podcasts. But how often do you get asked this question? I'm just kind of curious. Uh, this is a question I get all the time and there is not a good answer to it for people. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they won't be satisfied by it. So I was thinking about this because Warren Buffett in his annual meeting this year talked about how he prepared testimony for Ben Graham. He did some research and stuff for him. And so, uh, Ben Graham in that testimony was asked about, uh, one of the senators there asked him if, uh, what do you do when you find something that's worth $50 and you buy it for 30? He said, do you go out and advertise or something? How do you close that gap? Yeah. Right. And Graham's answer was that in his experience, it does close. And that's been my experience as well. Um, and that's hard to get people to understand mm -hmm. that that's true. Um, now, the risk that Graham talks about, and which is true, is if the value gap doesn't close within a certain amount of time and something changes in the business, that's the problem that you face. I've not found it to be true that just a value gap continuing to exist forever is actually a problem. Uh, it just doesn't happen as much as people think it, it would happen. Uh, but it does happen often that you think you have something that's a good value and then something changes in the underlying business. So you buy something that's at a 50% discount to the appraisal value of the land or something, let's say, and then something changes in the area so that the land becomes less valuable or credit conditions change. And so that becomes a problem, you know, those sorts of things, but not something where um, something with a P of three always keeps that same P. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on? And you gave an example on this in a recent podcast we did. I think you were talking about MLP and you okay. said, you know, if, if a stock pretty much has a one in 10 chance of, I guess, you know, sure. realizing the value with a 200 percent upside, you mm -hmm. know, so that could happen, you know, once over 10 years, those right. odds could be favorable. Right. So how much yeah. of it comes from? you know, thinking about like the probability of it happening. And do you think a lot of people, they're just too quick yeah. to make their decisions so they don't think about it like that? Yeah, I mean, you have to do the math on that. So the issue with something like Maryland and Pineapple or something in that case would be if they issue stock or if their overhead costs a lot or something. So if something's causing it to be worth uh, not to compound its value as fast as it should. Now, if you just had something, we'll use that as an example. If you have something that's selling at $500,000 an acre, on average, and you, it's actually worth a million an acre. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you have something like that, or 
or Peter Kundal would often talk about $0.40 cent dollars. So that's a case that might be that. At times, it has been. Mm-hmm. So at times, you could buy it at $0.40 cents versus the land value in the area, right? Now, it may have negative things that cause it to not compound its value as well because it has a certain expenses and things. But if you put that aside for a second and just look at how much it adds to the value to have this gap, um, th- what you figure out is, so let's say that there's a... a it, let's say it might take 10 years. Now, this might take longer than 10 years. It's, it's been a public company for a long time and hasn't closed and hasn't done a lot. It's, it's sold off some land and stuff. But um, if you thought 10 years was when it was most likely to happen, um, which is different than saying a 1 in 10 chance. Mm-hmm. A 1 in 10 chance basically means that you're talking about something that's on the odds likely to happen in five years. Um, but let's say that you think it's likely to happen in 10 years. Well, if you have a hundred percent upside in 10 years, Mm -hmm. then we're talking about something that is high single digits compounded, uh, to get there. Um, plus you might get some other value. Like in this case, it might grow at the rate of inflation or something. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing, if we're talking about Timberland, we've talked about a company like that before, you also get some value from it too. So you have to do the math there. If it's a small valuation gap, those are the biggest problems that I found. So, um, for instance, I would not buy a stock that doesn't have at least a 30% upside based on your valuation, because the reason why not is if it does take much time at all, you don't get uh, to make a lot of money on it. So I found, for instance, that like something that almost seems like it's a done deal that someone will buy out the company or whatever eventually. Um, Those can be a problem. Whereas the ones that have huge gaps but no catalyst are actually the better bets. And you can do the math on that by assuming, like, what if it takes five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. Um, and those are really only to be applied to things like companies like Magdalene and Pineapple. It's a controlled company. Mm-hmm. And so situations like that. If it wasn't a controlled company, the odds that it would take 10 years is just not high at all because someone will come in and do something. So when people say that, I'm really only talking about things that are big gaps and there's like a family in control, someone who doesn't want to sell, whatever, they can sell on their own pace, um, which is very different than like it's a net net and the biggest shareholder owns 5% of the company because that will close very fast Mm -hmm. because someone will come along and do something to make it close. So what do you consider quote unquote dead money then? Um. So in my experience, that's a couple things. One, it's that the valuation gap isn't really that big or it's not that conservative. Um, That's the biggest issue. So these tend to happen when someone's like, look at this stock. It's seven times EBITDA and peers in this industry are trading at 10 times EBITDA Mm -hmm. because that can get re-rated quickly. And so that can go away. And then the other thing is if it makes basically no earnings on its own. Um, But that's complicated because... Some businesses are cyclical and stuff like that, and it can be a little hard to tell. So take Maui Land and Pineapple, right? Yeah. Over the very, very long term, land in Hawaii is actually compounded at a perfectly good real rate, a very good real rate, much better than land in continental United States. And so because of that, except for the fact that you have expenses and stuff on top of it, actually it's not like a melting ice cube or something over time, right? But on the other hand, you can have something like we talked about Friedman Industries, which was a net-net. Um, that company on a totally cyclical basis, if you go over like 20 years at a time or something, actually has earned an average return on capital. So it hasn't destroyed value or something, but it has large periods of time where it earns like nothing. It, it, it's in steel. And um, as a result, it, something could happen to the business where it really starts to earn nothing. A good example of like a dead money thing would be like um, George Risk, because over time it piled up more and more cash. 
And so while the core business had about a 30% return on equity without, you know, um, leverage and stuff like that after taxes in, in cash terms. Um, but how is that considered debt money then? Well, because it piled up more and more cash. Mm-hmm. So what you owned became more and more just cash. So when the business, so the business could continue to be like, let's say the business is trading at about uh, one times book value or something, okay. right? Mm-hmm. If it trades at one times book value 20 years ago, that's a great bargain because it's earning a 30% return on equity. Sure. But if it takes that 30% return on equity, so it goes from a, being a book value of a dollar to a dollar 30. But now there's still only a dollar in the business per share. There's 30 cents in cash. And then the next year, there's over 60 cents in cash and so on. You know, it, as it, this happens, it will, um, the return on equity, of the overall business will keep declining. Mm-hmm. So it's the compounding in it that, that we talk about as dead money. But then what about how do you compare that to a Maui land and pineapple? Is it because they could just buy more land? I mean, what's the argument there? They haven't piled up cash. It's all held in land. Okay. So that, that's the big difference. If you piled up cash, then it, it would be. But remember, uh, the other thing with George Risk is that actually they invested in like uh, mutual funds and things like that. So it's not like it actually was dead money. Mm-hmm. I should point that out. So none of these were actually dead. I mean, the extent to which people said it was dead money is exaggerated usually. There's usually has to be something kind of wrong with it for it to be truly dead money. Um, there can be exceptions. But as long as the business isn't getting worse or something, I think it tends to be a little exaggerated, the dead money thing. In my experience, when people say it's dead money, it was an overvaluation of the company initially on things. We talked about that with um, Cool, the timber company. Um, it was uh, There's been a shift in the valuation of timberland per acre, and particularly a shift in that versus the stock market. So stocks multiple is expanding greatly, mm-hmm. while an acre of timberland kept getting appraised lower and lower. And so people are using kind of um, comparables in the stock market for whatever stock they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you've had this big destruction in value in one case versus the other. And a lot of that, honestly, is just people... Uh, Timberland has declined a lot as an asset in terms of people's appraisals of it. And stocks, people have accepted the appraisals of the market, you know, being pretty high. So I think that as long as there's a really big gap and you're not destroying value, um, the idea that it's dead money tends not to be uh, true. Now, it does tend to be true if you buy something at a pretty high or a pretty normal valuation that isn't as good a company. That's much more common. So So that argument for something like... um, uh, say Tandy years ago or something, right? That's a company in which it was once trading at fairly normal prices versus other stocks. And so it has definitely declined a bunch. It's maybe only had like one or so disastrous years uh, as a business, but it's had some decline as a business, though not huge. Um, and yet it's had a big decline as a stock because it used to be pretty fairly well-liked and then became something that came down to being like a net-net. And not not all that well-liked, but like an average, rate as an average business. So a re-rating of the business is usually, in my experience, a re-rating of the business is the real reason people say it's dead money. Um, it isn't that the earnings never grow over time. It's that the multiple contracts, Mm -hmm. you know, to offset any growth. Yeah. But then how do you sort of decipher between that multiple contracting being like a reason of a melting ice cube and a potential interesting value investment? Well, you just look at the business. So you just ignore the price and look at the underlying business. So for instance, from 2007 to today, Maryland, or let's say 2006 to today, Maryland and pineapples probably performed very badly as a stock. Um, but you go and try to check on the price of the land and stuff, and that's all a multiple contraction, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, same thing when we're talking about uh, cool with Timberland. There's not a deterioration in the business. That doesn't mean it's cheap now. It doesn't mean Maryland and Pineapple is cheap now. It doesn't mean cool is cheap now. It 
could mean they were so incredibly overvalued a decade ago or something. But you can see that not that much has changed in a decade or it hasn't gotten a lot worse. Compare that to Tandy, it could be considered significantly worse. Certainly its growth prospects are much worse. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples of a value trap other than Tandy or sort of a melting ice cube or... Well, a value trap and dead money are kind of different things, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. People use the term value trap a lot. um, And I don't know exactly what it means. But uh, there are companies that could look cheap, but I would say aren't worth buying because their earnings power isn't very good. So we used examples of companies that I think are almost certain to have pretty good ability to figure out their earnings power. And that's a little different. So, um, So Tandy could deteriorate a lot. But its competitive position, you know, is is strong and stuff. So it's like a question of whether that industry deteriorates a lot. Um, An example of something that could be a value trap in that same thing is like um, Barnes & Noble Education, right? Very cheap stock depends on what happens with bookstores like colleges and things like that. Um, So there's lots of things like that. But either they probably will go to zero or they'll recover quite a bit. It's not that likely that they'll earn almost nothing. Whereas like Friedman Industries is an example of something that might earn almost nothing. Things like Marilena Pineapple and Cool, I think, are not those sorts of things. I mean, they're almost certainly not. The management would have to do something strange and bad because fundamentally uh, Resortland in Hawaii um, and uh, and Timberland in Upper Michigan are have a certain value and aren't likely to have tremendously different values 10, 20, 30 years from now um, just because of the – you know, uses they could be put to and stuff. So it's not as special a use. Mm-hmm. Like a good example is we've also talked about cement companies and stuff. It, a price to book or uh, we've talked about car dealers. The, all those things, it's just not, those are very easy to value in terms of their earnings power. So usually it has to be something that's actually like, um, it's their competitive position. Mm-hmm. So the number one thing I would say you can find value traps in by far is retailers. Because retail is so specific to the actual chain, and it's all about the efficiency of that chain. There, people don't really put much value in what it's actually doing. So, so what does that mean? Well, people don't really care. Um, if, if, for instance, like uh, what service does Best Buy provide to you that Circuit City couldn't, or Amazon couldn't, or Walmart couldn't, or Target couldn't? Whoever will give you the widest selection, the lowest prices, and stuff, you'll probably go to, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't think of that as the value-added thing. You might think a little bit. That's some of the things they sell. Some of the brands have a value add to them, maybe, although a lot of them maybe not. Um, whereas that's very different for companies that aren't based on the competitive position. Retailers are 100, like 100% based on the competitive position. So that's why Sears was like one of the best retailers was the best retailer in the United States and stuff for a while, and then could go out of business. Um, you know, they, they just, they don't tend, there doesn't tend to be much left of the retailer that gets sold off and stuff. It's, they trade at very different, a good example is like they trade at incredibly different values versus um, sales, gross profits, price to book, price to net current assets, things like that, which gives you an idea that it's all about their competitive position. Whereas if we compare that to something like um, a cement plant, it doesn't. It trades tends to trade much more accurately at a certain value versus its capacity or something like that. Do you remember why Circuit City failed? Well, Circuit City and several other companies like that, especially some that were much smaller than that, they'd already failed. Uh, I mean, Circuit City, why it liquidated may have also been the timing of um, when it happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, yeah, it was not as strong as Best Buy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so getting back to this topic then of what if it doesn't? close like this gap right so is it really 
you should you would feel more comfortable if the underlying business is still generating strong returns and they yeah. have you know the ability to maybe if it's piling up cash to maybe, you know, redeploy that capital. I mean, how do you sort of handicap that? Um, because that's, I think the question that a lot of value investors ask, you know, a lot of people could look at Maui line and pineapple and be like, well, I'm pretty wary of these land bakes, you know, sort okay, of speak. Sure. But to your point earlier, the value of Hawaii land has compounded over time. So that would probably make you potentially feel a little bit more like it's not quote unquote, dead money. Right. So like, what is it that you think about when investing in these value companies? Like that's going to make it either re-rate the stock or other investors figure out that it's cheap, you know, to give you, I guess, the confidence to stay in it when the stock's going nowhere. Yeah. I don't, I think it's just looking at the business and whether it's creating or destroying value, Mm -hmm. which in the case of like a land bank or something just means what management's doing. So do they sell off land that you thought would be worth more than what they sold it for? Did they, um, issue stock that's a big problem did they buy other stuff that you didn't want them to do they swap things for it? whatever so some are more complicated stuff like howard hughes is more complicated and it does things like that sometimes whereas marilena pineapple really isn't so do you think it's more complicated and do you think howard hughes is more inclined to do that because either a it's a larger company or b because the chairman of the board is an activist investor himself yeah i think those are true and i also think it's the structure of what they think they're doing mm-hmm. um it some companies in the same industries and stuff behave very differently in terms of some acquire lots of stuff and some just run their one thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's, a, yeah, the, I think the main shareholder in Maryland and Pineapple behaves very differently. Because it's like, you think about it, we were talking about the three things that you care about sort of to find these 10 baggers, right? Or mm-hmm. just to the search of the potential 100 baggers, right? Um, uh, you know, a capital allocation is on that list. Mm-hmm. And... I wonder if it comes down to capital allocation being so important because, okay, well, if they're just going to pile up cash, that's going to lower the return on equity. And that's probably not going to come up on a lot of investors' screens, right? Do they redeploy that capital? Do they buy more right. land? Do they pay it out as a dividend? So I think it really comes down to, you know, how management thinks about capital allocation. Yes. Building up lots of cash can be a very good reason for why your uh, stock's value gap is not closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, investing poorly can be another reason and they're legitimate reasons but you should be cautious because it's been my experience that you need to understand what management or the board or whoever the major shareholders actual feelings are about stuff and not be short-term oriented Mm -hmm. because i can't tell you how many times i've seen something where people say they're never going to do anything they haven't done things in years and years and years and they go out and do a transformative deal they were always intending to do that yeah always um they they never said they weren't going to do that it's that you got bored over time that they didn't do it you know or like you know but with say berkshire people don't believe oh he's just gonna hoard cash forever they think he's trying buffett to figure out what to do and then buy it and stuff because they maybe pay more attention to what he's saying um things like that so it does mean you have to really pay attention and that is a huge issue with maryland and pineapple i have no idea there in terms of what the major shareholder intends and stuff now you can read the 10k and stuff and see what the company says it's planning to do but i have some doubts with that one about the major shareholder whereas you take cool the major shareholder um is a hedge fund basically mm-hmm. yeah i mean because not tied to the timberland industry or anything really yeah yeah so it really comes down to the people involved because you're talking about earlier i mean there could be activist investors that look to close that you know that um that valuation gap i mean and to your point, what you just talked about, I mean, how many situations in your career have you come across? I think it's like a patience thing is a huge thing, right? There's been situations that we've come across where people on the outside hoard the company or, you know, sort of badger them or whatever. Um, and the company just continues to, you know, either build up cash or fix up the balance sheet or whatever. 
And, you know, then out of nowhere, they just do this big deal. And all of a sudden, you know, the business is on a completely different trajectory, you know, than before. Yeah. So you have to figure that out for yourself. Let's try to understand why they're doing it. So is it to understand the story, like the narrative, right? Right. Yeah. Like uh, capital allocation stuff. So like, for instance, as an example, we own stock in um, uh, accounts we manage on stock in Virtu Motors, Mm -hmm. uh, which have been very conservative. Uh, in terms of its capital allocation, like it didn't borrow as much against things as other companies do. Um, I did not, however, expect them to pile up cash forever. Mm-hmm. So by looking at what they were doing, I expected that eventually, they, while they wouldn't borrow a lot of money, they would pay out bigger dividends and buy back stock and stuff. Now, they stopped doing that because of COVID, uh, as did all the other um, car dealers. But looking at that was important to see if someone's not using uh, debt, that's something I like a lot. I like a lot to buy a stock that hasn't used debt or mm-hmm. isn't using debt now, and then we'll put on debt while I own it. That's my favorite thing to do, right? But it is true you have to look at that and be careful because it could be that they will irrationally build up cash. Um, but the warning I would always put out is, as an example, I bought stocks in Japan that were net nets. They were all trading below their cash value. Everyone told me that Japanese companies are never sold. Of the five companies I bought, two were sold within a year. Okay. Now they weren't sold at good prices or anything, but that's a warning to people that if you can buy something that's been uh, earned money in ten of the last ten years or whatever before um, you know interest and taxes and stuff, so the operating business, plus it's trading at a lot uh, in some cases, but certainly in all cases less than cash than the cash it has minus all liabilities. Mm-hmm. That will just generally work out really well. And even in countries where people say no one will ever buy them out and stuff, some management even management of their own company and stuff, we'll think about buying it out. So the biggest thing I have is you have to do the math on, is this gap big enough for me if I have to wait a long time? And often it is, okay? If you have a company that you think can compound value at five, six, 7% a year, nothing super impressive, right? But it's trading at 40 or 30 cents on the dollar. You can wait an incredibly long time, will feel to you an incredibly long time owning it. Um, When you look back on it, it may not seem that long, uh, to have that kind of return. Because something that goes, if you think about it, let's say 40 cent dollar, like um, Peter Connell will talk about. Well, 40 cent dollar means that it doubles once, okay? And then on top of that, then you uh, then get another 25% return even beyond that. That's a really big return that you get. Mm-hmm. And something going from 40 cents to a dollar over even several years adds enough of a percentage that that will be the difference in you beating the market and stuff. So if you can buy things that otherwise would do similar to the market, but you're buying them at, in terms of the underlying business, but you're buying at 40 cents versus a dollar, you can wait a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a, so it's not a problem. What I'm very cautious about, which I see much more, is people talking to me about an 80 cent dollar. See, and an 80 cent dollar has very little margin of safety and it has very little margin in terms of uh, time safety. Something has to happen with it quickly. And so the biggest cure usually is to find very, very big discounts, especially very, very big discounts and things that are very solid values that are likely to hold up. So when we do mention things like land, like premium land someplace and stuff like that, uh, or you know, it could be anything. It can be office buildings in, in the middle of Manhattan and whatever. Um, if you could buy them on a huge discount, that's very different than buying stuff that seems kind of questionable what it might be worth. You know, so that is why I mentioned things like a cement plant or something, because I feel that pretty much you can figure out what the value of that is through lots of different things. And so if that sells for 40 cents on the dollar, that's so attractive versus other things that have a much uh, tougher value to determine. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button both on the podcast side thing and on YouTube. A thumbs up goes a very long way for us as well. Again, I wanted to say if you like the work we're doing here um, and you want to continue to follow the podcast on July 1st, only available will be the 20 most recent podcasts. So make sure you go back and save that backlog. Uh, the rest will be behind a paywall. We're going to have more information um, coming out about that soon. It will be only about eight bucks a month. Um, but if you listen to the podcast uh, regularly, yeah, nothing's going to change great. for you yeah. and, and you could stay up to date on everything. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.